Today's podcast brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to the Weekly Grill. Today, something completely different. A view from the other side. We've spoken over the years with lots of producers, processors and various representatives from along the very long chain which makes up the Australian red meat industry. On the grill today, the Federal Secretary of the Australian Meat Industry Employees Union. Matt Geno, welcome. You're on the grill with Beef Central. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Kerry. Now, how many members at the moment in the Australian Meat Industry Employees Union? Um, across the country, there's about 12,000 um, members, and we have around about 4,500 here in Queensland. And what's the coverage of the uh, abattoirs and meatworks around Australia? Yeah, we cover workers in, in all aspects of, of abattoirs, so um, pork processing, poultry processing, beef processing. And we do have a little bit of sheep here in Queensland, but um, in other states we cover small stock processing. And well. what, sort of, what sort of percentage of the employees in that, those areas would you be uh, having your, as your members? Yeah, it varies from plant to plant. We've got some plants that are 90% membership. Um, and other plants with not so many, but typically across the whole industry, we'd have um, probably 30 or 40% yeah. um, of those workers are members of ours. That's a long way from those heady days of uh, 30 or plus years ago when there was virtually a meatworks in every other country town, which I can remember very well, actually. Yeah, no, definitely. Abattoirs were in every country town. They were owned by the local council or by the state government, and as well as um, there, was, there was numerous um, privately owned plants around the place. And unionism, really, you had to be a union member to get a job on it. Yes. It's the way of the world, I guess. And, and you were a meat worker and, and an experienced boner through a number of works over the years. Tell us about your career and when you started and where you worked. Yeah, I have been, Kerry. I, I left school at 15 and um, my mother, much to her horror, um, said to me if, um, if I didn't get an apprenticeship, I'd have to go back to school. So uh, the only apprenticeship I could secure at the time was a butcher. So I became a retail butcher at Burke's Quality Meats at Kippering. Finished my time there and um, realised that the retail trade didn't pay as much as the processing facilities. So I lined up at the gate every day at Metropolitan Regional Abattoirs and and worked there for for several years and have been in the industry on and off for thirty six years now. So is yeah. that is that when you become what they call a boner in the in the uh, meatworks? Yeah, well, I um, I boned around several sheds. My yeah. last shed that I boned in was um, Kilcoy Pastoral Company in the early 2000s, and I've been with the union since 2002. So how different is the union these days from when you first started? Yeah, essentially our union structures are very, very similar. Um, but I did touch on it before. I first got signed up to the union by the HR manager <laughs> at Metropolitan Regional Abattoirs. It was a place where no ticket, no start. If you weren't a union member, you wouldn't get work at that site. And as I said, people used to line up to work there. The hours were pretty short and the pay was good. So unions really sort of um, held those workplaces to a very high standard. There was centralised wage fixing, so it was award-based systems really um, were the norm across industry. So there was every year a log of claims that were put to the company, and then members across the, the, the state uh, would support that log of claims. And that's how we got wage increases. Now the Fair Work Commission 
has an annual wage review and those wage increases uh, to the awards are adjusted accordingly. So really it just disempowered that, that whole group of workers. But prior to that, every year they would have to fight for, for their wages, yes. I suppose in an ideal world you'd like to see a return to those, those, um, that sort of schedule for wage, wage increases? Yeah, not so much. Uh, at the end of the day, there has to be a bit of yin and yang, I suppose, in any any system. And over the last two decades, uh, the system has gone against the workers um, considerably um, and really reduced their power within the workplace. So I would like to see some of that come back, most definitely. But uh, every year, it was a struggle to, to get wage increases. And um, this system, I think, at the moment is is a more efficient way of, of adjusting awards, but there has to be an ability where workers have more of a say in that process. Now, were you around in the days of the Mudgeonberry dispute? I was, but I was a retail butcher at Burke's Quality Meats at Kippering right. at the time, okay. but Mudgeonberry was, it was a, uh, a big dispute um, for, for this union um, and certainly uh, set a few ground rules around Section 45D of the Trade Practices Act um, for all industries. So that was about was that, that's, that was largely about secondary boycotts, wasn't it? Yeah, correct. The Mudgeonbury plant was picketed by workers from the Catherine plant to get award coverage at the Mudgeonbury Works, and the Commonwealth Meat Inspectors would not cross the the picket line at Mudgeonbury. So the union was prosecuted under Section Forty Five D for secondary boycott. That's right. Yeah, and the union lost that dispute. Uh, that was a watershed moment for the history of the AMIEU, wasn't it? Any regrets about what happened in those days? Not so much regret. I, I think it was a situation where the NFF, the National Farmers Federation at the time, thought that there were going to be big gains um, within the meat processing sector. Jay Pendarvis owned Mudgeonbury Abattoirs. It was a small plant um, in an idyllic location on the edge of Kakadu National Park yeah. um, and people actually lived on site and worked on site and I think to a large degree Mudgeonbury was used to influence the outcome at all processing facilities. We went through the meat inquiry in 1996 and John Howard at the time um, identified the meat industry as one that needed reform. Funnily enough, um, Peter Costello was the barrister who worked for Jay Pendarvis on that Mudgeonbury dispute. Yes, um, meat workers used to be famous, or I might say infamous, for their strike action, but strikes are extremely rare these days. Is there any particular reason for this? I think, again, I touched on it earlier, that yeah. there is annualised wage increases that the Fair Work Commission now just deliver. People don't have to go on strike or people don't have to agitate for those wage increases. But under enterprise bargaining, um, now it is individual enterprises as opposed to the collective or, or meat workers across the country trying to advance their wages and conditions. So by dissolving the collective, now it comes down to individual sites. There's been significant legislative changes over the last two decades that have made it very, very difficult to, to go on strike now. There has to be a protected action ballot then there has to be notification that the strike action is taking place. Notoriously, then, the chillers are cleared out within that notice period and really the strikes become less effective than, than what they previously were. So to a large degree, strikes um, or the effectiveness of strikes uh, have, have been watered down a lot. Is that a good thing, do you think? Again, Kerry, no one takes strike action lightly. 
they took it and workers take it to advance their, their conditions and wages. Um, unfortunately, wages and conditions have slipped in our sector and part of that would be the, the loss of the ability to, to take action to advance the conditions and wages. So to a degree, it's, it's, it's a bad thing for the outcome of workers, but again, strike action is something that is taken as a last resort. Yeah. We're on the grill with uh, B Central. Our guest today, Matt Juno, he's Federal Secretary of the AMIEU. We'll be back in a moment. Breathe easy with Rhinogard, the only single-dose intranasal vaccine for control of IBR in your cattle. Get in control of bovine respiratory disease, that's BRD, before it begins. Just deliver a single intranasal spray of Rhinogard for rapid IBR control and add a single dose of Bovishield MH1 for protection against pneumonia. For rapid protection against MH and IBR in your weaners and pre-feedlot cattle, breathe easy with Bovishield and Rhinocard. Available from your local vet today. For over 180 years, Elders has proudly been supporting Australian livestock producers. Elders supports your business across the production cycle with more than 350 livestock agents, access to specialist livestock advice and auction services. Draw on our established relationships to buy and sell commercial and stud livestock across domestic and international markets. Enjoy Del Credere guaranteed payments when you sell with Elders. Livestock funding also available subject to approval. Elders for Australian agriculture. You're back on the grill with uh, Beef Central. Our guest today, Matt Jerno. He's the Federal Secretary of the Australian Meat Industry Employees Union. Let's talk about what's happening these days in meatworks uh, across Australia, and that is employment of foreign labour. What's the official attitude of the AMIEU to this practice? Yeah, well, foreign labour's been uh, a feature of the industry since 2004, um, we were quite supportive uh, back then. Well, not quite supportive. The the industry started bringing in, um, it was four, five, seven visa workers at the time, mainly from Brazil, and they were bringing workers in under a retail butcher ANSCO classification. The ANSCO classifications didn't contain butchers, uh, bonus, slicer and slaughterman. So we were instrumental in working with the industry to develop what's called the Meat Industry Labour Agreement. Under the meat industry labour agreement, there were certain protections, um, like a minimum salary level. There had to be a pathway to residency. The employer had to pay for airfares uh, to and from. And there was no concessions around regional plans. So when that labour agreement was developed, it was fit for purpose because the industries were competing with the mining industry at the time for labour. But unfortunately, that meat industry labour agreement over the last two decades has morphed into something very different to what it was originally um, intended for. They do have a 10% concession um, on the Tisment rate. The Tisment rate, which um, is the new MSL, has been suspended since 2013 at 53,900. And if you add a 10% regional concession to that, it comes out at around 48,500. So really the the current meat industry labour agreement isn't really reflective of, of what conditions and wages uh, in the meat industry should be um, and has been used to suppress wages and conditions in our sector. 
Now, I don't think the situation is peculiar to Australia. I think it's worldwide from my travels at least. Uh, that is, if Australians won't work in these uh, meatwork situations, what alternatives do processors have but to seek workers elsewhere? Yeah, typically I, I cast my reflections back to the day that I used to um, get up at four o'clock and line up at the gate at Metropolitan Regional Abattoirs. Um, and I'd line up there sometimes with a hundred other people hoping to get work. I used to get on on a medium kill, which was not uh, eight sixty, but if it went lower than that because they'd sold the sale yards over the road, I didn't get on. It was a it was a sought after occupation. Typically, someone um, and the old saying used to be, someone would have to die to get a job in the meatwork. Yeah. So the industry has become less attractive over the years. And entry-level jobs um, now in the sector, you can go and work at, at Coles or Woolworths and get the same rate of pay. So a kid leaving school has the opportunity to go and work for Coles or Woolworths, stacking shelves in a, in a fairly clean, pleasant environment, or go and work as a labourer or a floor boy in the meat industry, pushing blood down a blood drain with a squeegee. So again, the industry, because it is a tough, it's a hard industry, it's not an easy job, needs to become more attractive for local workers. And until it does that, it's going to rely on, on, on migrant labour to fill those gaps. And more attractive is um, built exclusively around higher wages? No, not, it's not always higher wages. It's obviously the opportunities. Kids these days um, need to be able to leave school and have opportunities or career options. Um, the meat industry is one that's, that's a perfect ground that uh, you can go and do a university degree, you can do veterinary science or environmental science or agricultural science, and the meat industry has a job for you and and a good job. Or you can leave school in year 10 and the meat industry has a job for you and a career for you. Um, most plant managers within the meat processing sector have come up through the ranks, you know, left school at year 10 and now are running multi-billion dollar businesses. It's it's an incredible industry and it does have the opportunities there, but the industry doesn't promote itself enough, doesn't promote the opportunities enough. Um, and as I said, entry-level jobs within the sector really just don't pay enough. Yes, offshore labour schemes like uh, Palm often target smaller Pacific nations like the Solomon Islands, Samoa, Fiji, uh, Fiji maybe uh, Tonga perhaps, but... Uh, where there's only a limited number of people available before it impacts on their own economies, should such labour schemes be looking at bigger English-speaking countries like Asia, like the Philippines or India for labour? I think there are certainly political advantages for, for supporting or looking um, to these nations in the, in the South Pacific, and I, I think Palm was developed around that, you know, that ethos that uh, look after our Pacific partners first. And Palm, a lot of these people live a subsistence lifestyle um, in their country of origin. So, you know, they're not highly paid. They don't earn very good wages in their own country. And coming over here gives them the opportunity to earn better wages and send that money back home, learn transferable skills that hopefully will develop um, some industry over in their own country. So I think there has to be a combination of I suppose these are schemes that complement each other, not one over the other. And I think Palm is an integral part of that that process. Um, Palm has just recently, the new deed has come out for Palm visa workers that offers pay parity, which was a big issue or a big concern for us 
a lot of the workers coming in under the Palm Scheme were employed through labour hire and were earning considerably less than what the local workforce was. So the pay parity and, and those other changes with the new Palm Deed, I think, will go a long way to, to assisting those workers. So that's been more or less fixed, has it? Yeah, Palm, um, the, the new deed is, is very progressive. It's, it's certainly fixed up a lot of the issues um, with the original Palm scheme, yes. Yeah. Can or does the AMIEU represent the interests of offshore labour as while they're still here? Oh, definitely. Um, we, going back to 2004, we were um, the first union to employ <laughs> a Brazilian organiser on a 457 visa to, to look after the the Brazilian workforce. Unfortunately, companies um, went to different nationalities and made it very, very difficult to have an organiser for each nationality. Um, Some sites have a dozen different languages at that site or a dozen different nationalities, which makes it quite difficult. But um, without having members from overseas, we wouldn't be here. Um, So, no, definitely we look after the interests. We advocate for the interests of these workers. Workers are workers, um, regardless of what country they come from. And these are guest workers in our country a lot of the time, and they are going back home. Um, and we've got a responsibility to, to look after those workers and make sure that uh, they're not being exploited. Now, another topical subject at present, is the AMIEU concerned about the impact of automation or robotics in plants? And are there some areas where, in fact, automation is inevitable? Yeah, look, in 2023 and essentially in the meat industry, we still do things the same as we did um, when the CANPAC system was introduced in the 60s. You know, prior to that, it was bed and cradle slaughtering and and that it's gone to the rails. So that was the the biggest revolution in the industry um, or the biggest automation in the industry and nothing um, to any significance has happened since then in beef processing. Um, small stock processing, there is a lot of automation. JBS introduced a lot of automation into their southern plants around sheep processing, particularly in the boning room. Um, but beef processing is essentially um, done the same way as it was since the 60s. So I think automation is um, inevitable. At the end of the day, people physically can't do any more work. So if there's a constant push for increased productivity, there has to be automation brought into to the industry to cater for, for that demand for increased uh, productivity because it's just not going to come from people. So I think it's inevitable. Really, I think the only thing holding it back is people are reluctant to trial new automation in a commercial setting. So really, industry and government should get together and build a facility where that automation or, or new technologies can be trialled outside of that commercial environment. And if they work, they work and can go into the commercial setting. And if not, um, new things can be done. Matt, uh, is, if there was one thing that you could sit down and negotiate for any distance with the employers, what would that subject be? Yeah, that, that's a real tough one, Kerry, because there are some challenges within the industry and obviously the ebbs and flows in our industry are a big concern for the workforce. We can't just, you know, kill cattle and, you know, nine and a half million when we've got a national herd of 29 million in one year and then, you know, go down to six million or four million. It's it's just not a sustainable 
situation. So really we need to try and iron out that supply of stock and whether that, you know, utilising those tropical pastures um, in the north uh, better than what we do instead of putting animals on uh, a boat and exporting a million head of, of live cattle out annually. We really need to start looking at trying to even out the, the production cycle. So I'd like to see industry and the unions work together with government, with CSIRO, with other um, industry bodies to try and have a more consistent flow of, of animals and more consistent, reliable work. Um, a lot of our members have stood down for significant parts of the year just due to you know availability of stock and inclement weather conditions. If those animals were either grain finished or, or, or lot fed, um, that supply of stock would certainly be more reliable. So that's probably one of the biggest challenges we've got within the sector, um, this boom and bust, continued cycling. Um, when people are stood down, they leave the industry and go to different industries, and, and that's not a sustainable proposition. No, it's been like that for as long as I can remember, though, Matt, really. Yeah, it has, and it has been a feature of the industry, but typically workers could follow a season. So if they were stood down, there was no beef processing in Queensland, they could jump in their cars and head to Victoria and, and do some small stock processing down there. But at the moment, the more, I suppose, international um, companies get involved in beef processing, they'd rather just turn the lights off um, than actually work, work on reduced kills. So. I think there are ways of um, streamlining or, or keeping the the curve a little bit flatter, and I think as um, as an industry we've got to work on those. And it helps obviously with producers with uh, getting a, a, a reliable uh, price for their animals. Uh, it wasn't too long ago, you know, cattle were nearly three thousand dollars a head, and those numbers have fallen back considerably to where they are now. So if you were a restocker and you were buying cattle back then trying to convert them into profit now is near impossible. But I think if that curve could be flattened a bit, there wouldn't be such volatility within the industry. Yeah. Fiddling with the law of supply and demand, Matt. <laughs> Good luck with that. Um, Matt Jerno, Federal Secretary of the Australian Meat Industry Employees Union. You've been on the grill with Beef Central. Thank you so much for your time today, Matt. Thanks, Kerry. You have a great day. Thank you for joining me today. If you have a question or topic you'd like discussed on the Weekly Grill, Email theweeklygrill at beefcentral.com. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is The Weekly Grill brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Mm-hmm.